Many people assume that shelter dogs have something wrong with them, and that is why they're there. However, that is not often the case, because some shelter dogs are there because their owners died or suddenly became incapacitated, and their owners did not make provisions for their dog's care. Today on The Long Leash, what you can do now to prevent that potentially from happening to your dog. We speak with an attorney who has special knowledge of trusts and pet protection agreements for dogs. Hello, I'm James Jacobson, and welcome to The Long Leash. Kim Bresson Kibway is a lawyer who, for many years, worked at the ASPCA in New York. She was a trust and estate counsel for the nonprofit organization. And she joins us today on this very special episode for a frank and enlightening discussion about what exactly you can do now to protect your pets. You'll hear Kim's tips on whether to use a will or a trust agreement, and also how to interrogate an estate planning lawyer to determine if they will best be able to protect your darling dog. We talk about why microchipping helps prevent fraud, And we also discuss the existence of a very inexpensive form that you can find online to protect your pup from a unfortunate future. Kim Brisson-Kibwe, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. So we wanted to get in touch with you because you, for many years, worked at the ASPCA, the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, as a lawyer and you focused on trusts and estates. Correct. Gifts that were coming to the entity, to ASPCA, came across my desk, basically. And you were there for a number of years. 17. And one of the things that you were very passionate about is not only, you know, receiving donations to help further what ASPCA is doing, but helping pet lovers understand what to do in the event that they can't take care of their pet anymore, i.e. they die or become indisposed and their pet continues on. Right. That is actually correct. And I was lucky enough to, how can I say, practice the area of law that I think very few attorneys know, but love when they hear about it. And it's what we call pet estate planning. And um, you've actually hit the nail on the head. You know, we love our pets, but we don't think about what happens if something happens to us, whether it's permanently or if it's temporarily, but we need to think of these things. Now, you were at the ASPCA during a news event in the late 80s that uh, riveted a lot of people in New York and beyond, which is when Leona Helmsley basically died and she was a big hotel magnet and she had a little Maltese named Trouble who got an awful lot of money. Right. It did. Well, actually it's interesting that you brought that up. I did some fact checking and I think Leona passed away in 2007, if I'm not mistaken. Right. I think so at the age of 87, Mm. but still the whole point of the story is that she was a billionaire. Okay. And I want to stress that she was a a billionaire. She and Harry had about 5 billion in assets and she originally left 12 million in a trust for trouble. 
And I think when I first heard the story, people were gasping and 12 million for a dog. And oh my God, that's so much money. But you know what? I did a quick calculation. And if a person had 500,000 in assets, it would be comparable to spending maybe 20,000 on your dog. So 20,000 is not out of the ordinary for someone with half a million in assets. Girlfriend had five billion in assets, so she could very easily spend twelve million in a pet trust on her little mutt. Excuse my French. So what happened is the long and the short. We're going to do thirty words here. There was all this drama. Oh, how could people, you know, leave this much money to a pet? Blah blah blah. Well, the dog was eating Kobe burgers, Japanese burgers. Okay, among other things. So these things can get expensive. So. They go to court and the judge basically scales back the gift to the pet to $2 million. And the $10 million went to two other grandchildren, as I recall, who happened to be left out of the main will or whatever the document was for disposing of gifts to various relatives. So that's what happened. $2 million, it went from 12 to 2 and trouble ended up staying in a little gated community in Florida with, I believe it was a security guard because nobody wanted trouble. Trouble was trouble. So that's really what happened with that scenario. But it was one of the first times that sort of money, that kind of funding came into the into the news for one thing and into the courts. It was a, a very big case. And it was an opportunity to educate people about the importance of pet trusts because it probably hadn't even been talked about in the news before. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, pet trust is getting to the next stage. We weren't even talking about people including pets in their plans. And, you know, we got to the point at ASPCA where when people adopted animals, what we tried to do is get back in touch with them and have a conversation about, well, what are you going to do about your pet? I mean, you don't want to put all this on them at one time when they first adopt, but you want to stay in touch with them. And maybe three months later, six months later, you get back in touch with these new adoptive parents and say, hey, guys, did you think about what would happen if something happened to you? Who's going to step in? How do people get into your house? Who have you named as a caregiver? Blah, 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 blah. All of these are questions and and that people who are pet owners who love their pets need to understand and need to think about. Did the whole saga with the Helmsleys raise the profile of the importance of that? Oh, definitely. Absolutely. I think it absolutely did. I mean, myself and other practitioners in this field, you know, did what we could. You know, you try to do a little talk here or there in front of our, uh, a group of attorneys. That didn't go over too well. But, you know, you try to talk in these community types of conversations, whether it's a Rotary Club or whatever, and you try to get on their agenda. But by and large, I think the Helmsley thing really did a lot to get to people thinking about their pet children for lack of a better word. You say that you're in a sort of a small fraternity, sorority of attorneys who practice this. How small is it? Well, it's it's better now than it was. Um, when I first started working at the ASPCA and going to estate conferences, the whole notion of talking or even raising the question of whether a person had a pet didn't even come into existence. And I started back in 1999 at the ASPCA. And the, it, it wasn't even a conversation amongst estate attorneys, people who what are there to help you dispose of your assets. Well, 
it wasn't even part of the conversation. But I can honestly say that by the time I retired from the ASPCA, New York County Lawyers Association actually developed an animal law committee, which now deals with these very issues. Well, they developed it while I was there because I was part of it, but that was what, 2017. So I think things have come further than they've been in a very long while. Let me put it that way. But I think people need to be careful just because a person is an estate attorney and they can draft the trust. If they don't have an animal, I think you need to be careful. Uh, Tell me more about that. What do you mean? What are some of the things? Well, another word, a person who has an animal knows what an animal needs. They live with an animal. They can identify with all the little peculiarities that animals have, what they like to eat, what they don't like to eat, who they're allergic to, what behavioral issues. All of these are sensitivities that lawyers who have been around animals, maybe they don't have them, but they've been around them, have a sensibility about. And I'm sorry, that's just the way it is. I hate to call it the way I see it, but I have seen too many documents written by people who don't have animals. So they don't have the same sensibility. They're not asking the questions that need to be asked of people who have animals in order to what? Rehome them, which is what it's all about. So when you're sitting down and looking for an estate lawyer to put this together for you, ask them about their pet. Thank you. I love that. Hello. If they don't have a pet, excuse me, go to the next person. I'm sorry. Let them be the second in, you know, in line, but go find somebody who has a pet, who knows what it is to have a pet, lived with pets, lived around animals, farm animals, whatever, but been around animals, been around pets. Is it, I mean, like, is there an association or is there some resource online or elsewhere that people can go and know, oh, these are estate attorneys who have expertise in this area? Well, it's interesting you bring that up. I just was doing some checking myself. There are organizations that can point people in the right direction, not so much to find an attorney, but to help them understand the whole process of planning and the questions that attorneys are going to ask them and the information they need to gather in order to, to do that. And there are these same websites give people alternatives. If you can't afford an attorney or that's not Working for you, there's other options that people can can look at in terms of planning for their pets. And there's a couple of websites out there. I think one called Second Chance for Pets, I think it's called, or Second Chance for Animals. But one can Google it. I think one can Google. And I guess my other suggestion would be check some of these animal welfare organizations. They may have attorneys that they've dealt with in the past and had a good experience with them and can say, okay. I mean, I did when I was working at the A, if um, I came across people who I thought would be good referrals, and, and this is all through the country. I was working with attorneys all over the country. I kept a list because I knew it was hard to find. But a lot of it too is ask your friend, ask your neighbor, ask someone who has gone through the process or is going through the process. The internet makes it a lot easier than it was. How many people with wills do you reckon have actually provided for their pets? That's a good question. My understanding is that only 20 to 25% of people have even made a will. Mm. So taking that percentage, I don't know. That's a good question. I would have to say less than half. Less than half. Less than half have thought about and made provision for their pets. And again, my suggestion is that people get educated about the options that they have. I don't recommend putting instructions 
for the care of an animal in a will document. I don't recommend it, mainly because a will means nothing until a person dies. And so what do you do in the event that, quote, you're not dead, but you're incapacitated? Now what do we do? The will has absolutely no effect. It means nothing. Mm -hmm. So you want to make sure that whatever plans or instructions you create, it's going to be viable in the event of non-death. Hello, you just might end up breaking your leg in the hospital for a week. But who's going to take care of your mud or your cat? Who's going to come in and do what they need to do? And these are very basic things that you need to take care of. You put information on the on the refrigerator. I mean, blah, blah, blah. I could have a whole nother discussion about that. So I was going to say, so what is the mechanism for that? Is it estate planning? Is it like doing a very formal document? Or could it be something as simplistic as a note on your fridge? Well, it's interesting you bring that up. There's a concept call and it's online. I think LegalZoom produces, it's it's called the Pet Protection Agreement. Mm -hmm. And I think it's like $59. Don't quote me, but a person could go online, LegalZoom, and it's called the Pet Protection Agreement. And basically what this is, is it's basically a contract that you as the pet owner, you find a caregiver or it could be a relative or anyone who you entrust with the care of your pet. And it's basically an agreement that you strike up with them. And in this agreement, you've listed out all the details about the care of your pet, blah, blah, blah. If there's money to be involved, it lists the amount of money, what it's going to go for. If at the end of the pet's life, where does the money go? We recommend that it go to a charity. But the point here is it's called a pet protection agreement. And that's something that you can go right online, legal Zoom, and it's something an individual can execute without the assistance of an attorney. Wow. Some people do, but some people don't. This is a good place to start. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Yes. That's an amazing resource because it can get pretty pricey if you sit down with a lawyer. Absolutely. And make no mistake, in some cases, depending upon people's situation, if they are a rescue group and they tend to shelter animals, they have to have planned for this because no one can adopt 10 animals in one spot. I mean, it's one thing to foster one, but you can't place 10 animals in the event something happens. Some people have six, seven animals in their household. They really need to sit down and think about what would happen. What are the alternatives? And there are alternatives. I must stress there are alternatives. So what are some of those alternatives? Well, one was the pet protection agreement, as I just mentioned to you, which I think is very doable. It's doable for a lot of people because it's affordable, okay? And it covers all the bases. It, it includes all the important information that people need to convey in the event that they, what, are comatose. Suppose, you know, you're in a coma. I mean, come on. You want to be able to talk about what you can do for your animals. And this is information that you've recorded, you've provided. People can pick up where they left off. They know where the vet is. They know if the animal's taking medication. Uh, does the animal have any allergies? And as I said before, all of the behavioral issues that the animal may or may not have can be recited in this pet protection agreement. Of course, the pet trust is something that a lawyer would probably be more involved in, but it's for those cases where you have unusual animals. Some people have horses, for example, several horses. And so horses live much longer than 21 years. And so it seems to me horses might be the subject of a trust because of, of course, the expense involved and where you're going to board them. And I mean, all those questions that a person would need to ask about any pet. Aviaries, a cockatiels, these, some of these birds, parrots live to be 80 and 90 years old. <laughs> so people need to be respectful of this and plan. Maybe bird will go to an avian sanctuary or something like that. But these are things that people need to think about. 
Then there's alternatives such as just the very basic, your next door neighbor loves your pets and is, it's a oral agreement and they're willing to do it and you trust them. I don't have a problem with that. I only say that whoever you have entrusted with the care of your pet, make sure that they are on the same page with you and you both understand that this is a lifetime commitment or if it's a fostering commitment, that's okay too. Sometimes it's good to find someone who can foster your pet for two or three weeks until a permanent home can be found. All of these are things that people need to think about. But what kills me, and I'll say this real quick, People assume that somebody wants to take care of their pet. You don't know that. Just because the friend has been to your house and the pet maybe came over and sniffed them, they didn't lick them, they sniffed them, doesn't mean that your neighbor or your friend loves your pet the way you do. So you want to be very clear about that conversation that you have with them. If, in fact, you want a a friend or a relative to step in, you got to be clear about that. I've seen situations where relatives said, no, no, thank you, don't like the pet, or the pet doesn't like me. Blah, blah, blah. How do you have that conversation with the person that you want to leave your dog to? Well, you know, I think people in dog circles kind of know who their, quote, dog buddies or cat buddies are. You know, their cat-loving friends and dog-loving friends. I think a lot of people know who they can have that conversation with. And like I said, this is a two-stage deal. You may have friends who can foster your pet. For a period of time, but they're not in a position to take the pet on a permanent basis. Mm. And to me, that beats something. So you do it in little steps, even if it means you find somebody who can watch your pet in the event you, something should happen. You can, they'll come and watch them for two weeks. Great. At least you had this conversation and maybe you do the same for them. You know what I'm saying? Maybe it's you do for you, they do for you, et cetera, et cetera. You help each other if you live nearby. So these are some of the kinds of things that I think people Well, they need to, that's the way to bring up the conversation. I think the conversation is to make sure that somebody knows your pet is there. 800 pets were left in the World Trade Center. Hmm. 800 pets were left in the World Trade Center when it went down. And the animal cops went up and down, up and down, rescuing them. They rescued as many as they could. But had somebody known where they were, it would have made their jobs a lot easier. So. Wow. Kim, let me stop you right there. Let's pause right here and we're going to take a break and we will be right back. And now a message from your dog. Every day with you is like a day at the beach and I want as many beach days as possible. I want to run and sniff and find a good stick to carry. I want to roll in the grass and warm my belly in the sun. I want to walk with you, run with you, sleep with you, eat with you. And when I eat with you, I want Everpup. The green, grassy, beef liver spiked smell wakes my senses. You may not realize this, but it tastes like homemade gravy, especially when you wet it. It infuses any food you give me with health and life and vibrancy. I can feel it. Everpup traveling to every cell in my body, nourishing each one. Does it roll back time? Of course not. Not really. But it helps me feel like I'm on top of the world. I'm so glad you're giving it to me every day. Because every day I'm so glad to be with you. I'm so grateful to be your dog. And for the ever pup you give me. So now that you know what your dog wants, get Everpup, the ultimate dog supplement. Everpup is available in select pet shops and on Amazon. 
But to get the best price possible, join the EverPup Club at everpupclub.com, where you'll get your first jar for just $8 with free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Go to everpupclub.com and use the discount code DPN. That is everpupclub.com. Everpup, every day. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back. This is The Long Leash. You mentioned a moment ago the number 21 years. Mm -hmm. Why is that significant? Okay, well, it's interesting you should bring that up, but 21 years is the rule against perpetuity, and I just want to be quick about saying this. In a lot of state laws, they only let pet trusts last for a duration of 21 years, and it's more of a legal theory behind it as opposed to a practical theory. There are some state laws, pet laws, laws that create pet trusts, that will permit the existence of a pet trust beyond 21 years, which makes sense. It's because, hello, turtles live to be, what, 100? (laughs) You got uh, parrots that live to be 75 plus. You have horses that can live easily 30, 35 years. So the point of allowing pet trusts to extend beyond 21 years is to make the focus the life of the animal, not the term of the trust. And so there are some states that Sorry, they haven't just figured it out yet. And there's others that realize that the life of the pet is the correct measuring tool, not arbitrary time frame. Now, not all 50 states have laws for pet trusts. Quite a few do. And I knew you were going to ask me this, but um, I can only say that in the vast majority, I'm going to say at least 46, 47 states have some kind of law that will allow you to protect your pet in some way or some way, shape or form. Some are better than others, like I said, and probably an organization like Second Chance, maybe the ASPCA, they might even still have that information. I know we had it. We gave it out. People would call us and ask us, does my state have a pet trust law? New York has, New Jersey has, blah, blah, blah. And so we would give them that information. So they need to um, make a call and see if uh, they can find that information online. Do a Google. Boop, boop. So let's go back to the lawyer questions for a moment. What do you reckon, do lawyers, when they sit down and do estate planning, do they often ask about the animals? Uh, I'd say half do and half don't. When you consider um, two out of three families in America have one or more pets, there's a good chance that the lawyer will ask, but there's no telling. And some people just, it, it flips their mind. I think it depends upon their own relationship with their pet to be frank, because people don't think of pets as property, but pets are legally property. And so unfortunately, that conversation doesn't come up with lawyers because they don't think of their pets as property, but they are. But you can't help it. Sometimes they just forget. They don't even think about it. They said, my pet is property. That's my that's my honey bunny. That's my hoogie bear, or whatever you want to call them. So people be out of a love of their animals don't think of them as property. So very often, Lawyers don't bring it up because they don't think of it as property. But in fact, animals are property, and we have to consider that. 
Is there any instance when you would go to an attorney just to focus on the pet trust separate from your overall estate? Absolutely. Absolutely you can. In fact, I think documents for the care of the pet should be separate from estate planning documents because let's face it, pets, their lifespan is a lot shorter and you may not be in a position or need to change your estate planning documents, but for a pet, pets come and go. The situations change. You might add a pet, you lose a pet, blah, 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 blah. I think there's a lot more chance for change when you have one or more pets and I would keep the documents separate. It's much easier. And so this is the idea behind that like legal the pet Zoom, protection pet agreement. Protection agreement. Exactly. Exactly. And a more elaborate estate plan. In an estate plan, or even in a pet protection agreement, how much can you stipulate? How specific can you be about your dog's diet and veterinary care? Absolutely. You can be specific. We want you to be specific because to the extent that you're specific, Add ad nauseum, a person can rehome your animal a lot quicker. Mm-hmm. We need to know all the peculiarities of your particular pet. Maybe your pet doesn't like you to touch his head, the top of his head for some reason, or they don't want you to touch their feet or what, whatever the peculiarity might be. But I think it's very important to list the more information, the better. Oh, this one likes carrots. This one doesn't like lettuce. Oh, this one likes, I don't know, whatever, crackers. I mean, whatever the thing, you know, the, the idiosyncrasy. Or beef in the- Oh, in listen, the- <laughs> listen, I have a situation, personal situation where I took care of a pet and Poland Springs water is what the donor wanted me to And so I spring, listen, you're laughing. I took care of the pet for 11 years and I drink Poland Springs water. Okay. So that's when I'm not using my filter. But anyway, you can get as specific as you want to. We need the specificity because it helps to rehome. Okay. Do the pets need to be kept together? Are the pets, uh, are they good around children? Do they like long walks? Are they couch potatoes? Hmm. Do you want to feed them bones? They can have bones. Blah, blah, blah. It goes on and on. Not to mention the fact, the medical side, right? So after you've stipulated this in either a pet protection agreement or in your estate planning, Mm -hmm. how do you ensure that your wishes are followed after you're dead? That's a good question. A lot of this has to do with downright integrity and trust, all right? And then a lot of it has to do with coming together with what I would call a panel. Some people put set up an animal panel, which could be your veterinarian. It could be a person who does dog walking or cat sitting. It could be a relative. It could be a financial advisor who may be doling out money to this individual or to that agency that may be caring for your pet. So you consider an animal panel. Okay. So asking people to act as quote, this sort of animal panel to kind of keep an eye out on things, you see? And I think that's about the only way you can do it. Many eyes will be safe, right? As opposed to you just knowing and you didn't tell anybody that, you know, this person is a caregiver and blah, blah, blah. I think if everybody is in on it and they understand that it's a mutual situation where we're helping one another and we're going to be apprised of what's happening, I think there's less chance of something going awry. Do you have a sense of the difference in this type of planning in the United States versus other parts of the world? Oh, that would be very hard for me to say at this point. I've been out of the market for some time, but I can only say that uh, I would imagine anybody all over the world 
people who travel, especially with their animals, are aware of it. But I couldn't say what the percentages are. And, you know, I know the French, I know the British love their animals. We know this. But um, I don't know. I don't have any figures for that. What about like a Venn diagram of the number of people who have dogs in the United States and those who have wills and then we'll say oh, a subset of that. A subset yeah, of that. It's, it's pretty low. I would probably see only one in five maybe have thought about planning for their pet. Maybe one in five, maybe. So in instances where people are leaving a large sum of money, and I think you were very clear in pointing out that while Leona Helmsley's bequest sounded like a lot of money percentage-wise, yeah. it wasn't that much, especially when it went from 12 to 2. You know, we're going from, from 20000 to you know, a few thousand dollars for someone who is a half a million dollar estate in context. Mm-hmm. But in instances where you are leaving a large sum of money to the dog, how often can that be challenged or how often does that get challenged in court? Mm. Uh, it's interesting. I've seen it challenged on a couple of occasions, but I think the reason as what happened with Helmsley was, I don't think there was enough specification as to what the dog's needs were. In their case, bulk of the money was spent on security because they were worried about somebody coming in, kidnapping the little mutt and, you know, wanting a ransom. So they spent quite a bit of money on security. But I think a person needs to be able to justify the pet's lifestyle. And people just need to be straight up. Look, my pet has their own bedroom in my house. This is their diet. They go on vacation with me. And when they go on vacation with me, they travel first class. Whatever the lifestyle is, the more you explain it, the better in terms of substantiating the money that you've left. What are some of the craziest things that you've seen? In ter- I mean, I'm just smiling ear to ear when you describe the first class travel and the vacations. Have you actually seen that? Well, no, I've read about it. Oh, absolutely. I've read about it. And I think Dusty Springfield, this has been reported. I just looking at some of my notes. Dusty Springfield, this older country singer, required that her pet sleep on her nightgown every night. I mean, there's some crazy stuff out there. After she's deceased. Yes, she is. Oh, yeah. After, Oh, yeah. She was deceased. But she insisted that the pet sleep on her nightgowns, you know, be giving a nightgown. Mm -hmm. Um, But no, there's all kinds of situations where people want their pets to be treated a certain way. I can think of thoroughbred horses as an example, being treated a certain way and travel a certain way and things of this nature. And because of their station and who they are and what they are, a judge is not going to say, oh no, you can't leave a million dollars to take care of this thoroughbred. Uh, Excuse me, judge, the thoroughbred is in a stable. He has, you know, people who take care of him. No, the point is to substantiate the money that you're leaving, the fun that you're leaving, be able to common sense things that, and I should say not so much common sense, but things that the animal is used to. It's the animal's lifestyle that's the focus, not the house where it's going to or whatever. It's the animal's focus, their past focus, their past lifestyle. That should be the focus, I should say. How do you prevent fraud? In other words, oh, you're bequesting this money to this Maltese named Trouble, but what's to prevent a scoundrel from uh, changing out with another dog? Well, you know, it's interesting you bring that up because I had read in a couple of cases where money was left to a black cat, (laughs) but there were three black cats in existence at the end when they finally found out that the first black cat, who was the object of the original gift, died. And so what happened is the caretaker kept substituting 
black cats and in fact was on her third black cat before they realized that the trust should have been ended, the gift should have been, you know, expended to the charity, et cetera, et cetera. So I would suggest that people get a chip, microchip. You microchip your pet, and that's something that they do now. In case an animal gets lost, they run the scanner over them, and they can see where the animal belongs. And most adoption centers, ASPCA among them, microchip the animal before they release the animal for adoption because of this. They don't want the animal to to get lost. Maybe there's scars, maybe there's markings that one would include in their description of their pet. You know, my son, so-and-so has a ring around his eye like the uh, little rascal's dog did. So you become a little bit more descriptive as to the animal itself. And that helps. So microchips are obviously easy. Yes, uh, but a description is definitely important. Absolutely, a description would help. Photos, DNA samples? Well, yes, absolutely. The more, the merrier. Absolutely. I don't know about DNA samples. I don't know if we have to go that far. But, <laughs> but all I'm saying, the microchip and the basics, the description, physical characteristics, height, weight, all that kind of stuff is good. And you talked a little bit earlier about the inspections, making sure that the people who are the trustees of the state are making sure that the wishes are administered. How is that done? And, and what are some tips about that? Well, quite frankly, as I mentioned, that quote, animal panel, unquote, I think that's a very ad hoc kind of thing. And I, there's no there's no rhyme and reason. I mean, that's up to each individual person and, and to the people, the association that they've formed to decide how they're going to stay in contact with one another. In what form? Is it going to be by phone? Is it going to be by letter? If there's an issue, how do we resolve it? So there aren't any laws written. There aren't any treatises written. There aren't any codes. It's all go as you you know, you have to kind of give it a shot and hopefully work with people who understand your passion for what you want to do for your animal. I would imagine having a backup to the primary caregiver is important as well. Absolutely. And you might even have a third person. Anything can happen to people. I mean, anything can happen. A person could have the best of intentions. And next thing you know, either they're not around or they become something happens where they're no longer available. So you always, always want to have a backup. And you want to stay in touch with them and make sure they're still it's still okay. Well, you can. Um, how often? How often do you think you should check in to just make sure that Sally is still going to take care of Rover? I don't know. Every six months, something like that. I mean, honestly, people's situation can change in six months' time. So I don't think you need to do it any less than six months. But I wouldn't let it go beyond a year. And it can be a pretty informal conversation. This does not need to be codified, right? Absolutely, because this is your friend, your buddy, this is your vet, this is maybe the place where you board your pet. It could be, absolutely, you want to be upfront. Don't mince words. No, you want to be clear about this. Absolutely. Speaking about being clear, should you provide language about the final disposition of your pet when your pet does pass? Yes, James, you've been doing your homework. <laughs> you absolutely want to describe what you want to happen, whether it's cremation, whether it's burial. If it's burial, you need to provide the funds because it's not cheap. And pets have to be buried, in, as far as I know, in a pet cemetery. I don't believe that's changed. Pets cannot be buried in, as far as I know, uh, human cemeteries, at least not in New York State. Yeah. It could be different someplace else. But yes, you want to make sure that you're clear about what is to happen to the disposition. Absolutely. And if at all possible, leave funds for that as well. Any final thoughts, Kim? 
Oh, uh, I don't know. It's been a long time since I've been talking about this, but I, I'm glad it's on the radar and I'm glad you're talking about it. And, you know, just take some questions and I'd be happy to come back and answer any questions that your audience might have or might generate. Okay. Maybe there's something we haven't talked about or haven't discussed and I'd be more than happy to come back. We'd love to do that. We'll do that in the future. We'll do maybe a live show where, where people can ask questions. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, James. I really appreciate you asking me. And listen, if you have any questions or whatever, off air, if you have any questions, send them to me. I'll email and we can email back and forth. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Wow. I found Kim's overall message to be both forceful and very convincing. We all should be having hard conversations with ourselves and our trusted loved ones today, this week, to be able to protect our fur babies tomorrow. If you like what you heard today, perhaps you will be interested in checking out another show here on Dog Podcast Network. It's called Dog Edition. It is our flagship show. It's our news magazine formatted show. We call it the world's first podcast designed for you to listen to while you walk your dog. And we tackle the question, what happens to my dog when I die? You'll hear how one dog inherited millions of dollars and how a dog sanctuary in Australia is helping people rethink how they approach this estate planning process for their pets. And we'll also listen to you as we visit dog parks around the world. That is on the latest episode of Dog Edition. You can find that wherever you find your podcast or go to the website dogedition.com. I want to thank you for hitting the play button today. And I want to encourage you, please tell a friend about The Long Leash. And please make sure you follow us in your favorite podcast app. I'm James Jacobson. Our thanks to Kim Bresson Kibway. And most of all, thank you for spending some time with me today. From all of us at Dog Podcast Network, I want to wish you and your dog a very warm aloha. Is artificial intelligence going to change veterinary medicine? Well, it already has. Right now, on Dog Cancer Answers, we're speaking with Dr. Kelly Deal of Morris Animal Foundation about how AI is impacting veterinary research and the practice of medicine itself. That's on Dog Cancer Answers. Get it wherever you get your podcasts or at dogcancer.com slash podcast.